Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Uh, welcome to, the, to New Books and Digital Humanities, which is a podcast channel with the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Luca Schultz. I'm a lecturer in digital humanities at the University of Manchester. And um, this is a new series that I'm setting up together with several colleagues uh, to create a forum to discuss new books and book length projects that have a substantial um, digital component uh, from across the humanities. Uh, my own work is primarily in digital and spatial history. So basically using JS as a method of historical research. But I'm excited about argument-driven digital scholarship across the humanities. And that is why uh, today I will talk with uh, uh, Brian Weatherson, who is the Marshall M. Weinberg Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, Brian mostly works on epistemology, philosophy of language, and ethics. Um, He has wide-ranging interests, but tends to work on topics where philosophers are working in more technical and more discursive traditions have both made significant advances, but where these insights have not necessarily been combined into a unified theory. And today we're going to talk about Brian's new book uh, entitled A History of Philosophy Journals, Evidence from Topic Modeling, 1876 to uh, 2013, which uh, at the moment is published as a website. Um, The book looks at the entirety of research articles that were published in 12 major English language philosophy journals between 1876 and 2013 to look at trends across these journals and thereby um, important trends in philosophy itself. Um, It's basically a project that does distant reading through topic modeling. That is, it identifies 90 topics that come up in these journals and see how these developed along different dimensions, primarily time. And it is, uh, as we'll see, uh, an intellectually very fruitful endeavor. So, um, for example, um, one, one, one of the findings is, is that there is a striking disconnect between the work that contemporary analytic philosophers take seriously from the late 19th uh, or early 20th century and the work that typically appears in the journals in those years. And uh, we'll hear more about that from Brian in a minute. But 
what, what I think is particularly interesting about this project is that it's a great example for how digital methods can further argument-driven scholarship. So the book is, is also a reflection on method and on the countless choices um, that are made when collecting, processing, and visualizing, visualizing the data that this is built with. And I think similar projects could be envisaged in almost any academic discipline in which journals play an important role. Um, in fact, Brian added uh, replication instructions to, to, um, to the introduction of his book. So I think that it is here that this book speaks to an audience that is much larger um, than, um, than just uh, scholars of, of philosophy and a history of Brian. Oh, sorry, history of science. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the perfect, uh, perfect segue. So welcome, Brian. Um, welcome, Brian, to this interview. Um, Thank you. I'm glad... I'm glad you could you could make it. So I guess before we start talking about the book um, proper, could could you maybe tell us something um, about yourself, about um, your work more generally, and and how this project fits um, in your overall intellectual uh, trajectory? Oh, I mean the, the 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 way you described it at the start was great. I've always like uh, so I, I was a graduate student in philosophy in the 1990s in Australia at Monash University. And um, I think the way you described it is what I've always uh, pictured as being my, the standard thing I did, that I lived at the intersection of like more technical and more uh, discursive approaches to philosophy and trying to like, take insights from each and apply them to the other. And in the 1990s, this seemed like a uh, really easy, like, uh, way to get into philosophy because the two sides, the more mathematical and the more sort of discursive approaches, really weren't in much context. Um, it doesn't seem very distinctive now where like that, at that level of generality, half the graduate students in philosophy some feel like they're doing something like that. But I, my, my timing was a bit, uh, was a bit fortuitous. Um, one of the other things about doing graduate study in Australia um, is that Australian philosophy programs have, you know, generalizing a bit wildly, paid less attention to history of philosophy than programs in, in Britain or America or in the rest of Europe. And so I ended up with a somewhat random and spotty uh, background in history of philosophy. And it was so it was sort of interesting to just for my own sake, try and learn a bit more about where did this all come from? How did this all start? And uh, I didn't actually go into it thinking, gee, I bet the 1920s and 1930s is going to look totally different to what I thought it looked. But wow, the 1920s and 1930s looked very different to what I thought it looked like. Um, the, the other thing to say that, that, that first got into this, and it, the project didn't, didn't actually succeed at this, but there's a really striking, in, at least in my impression, discontinuity in English language philosophy around like the years 1968 to 1975. And if you look at uh, the citation patterns, this becomes in really, really clearly. If I haven't done this rigorously, but if you take an informal look at uh, syllabuses or introductory courses, there's any number of things you'll see from the late 60s onwards and very few from before that. And it's not just a temporal thing. That It's not just like, oh, people are willing to go back 50 years and not further. That 
that break point of around 1968, it feels like it's been reasonably stable for, for quite a while now. And the the bigger project this was part of was, um, though it, it turned out to not have as much to say about this as I'd hoped, but the bigger project was trying to get more of an understanding of just what happened in uh, the late 60s and early 70s and, you know, why did it happen? Why did it happen then? Um, and seeing if we can, you know, see what's going to, uh, what's going to come next. Right. Yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, had you done similar work to this before? Had you done this kind of um, computational work before? Or was this the I first time? I had done some considerably less uh, comprehensive and uh, rigorous uh, look at citation patterns. Um, but the thing I was saying about the breakpoint, you don't need to be particularly rigorous. You can just like eyeball it, just like, you know, look at the major journals and look at how many papers a year have over like 100 citations. And it goes from like, you know, one a year. Across, I mean, uh, not Google Scholar citations, but um, Web of Science citations, which are, you know, much, much lower magnitude. But you, you look at how many, you know, papers in the, the leading journals collectively have over 100 Web of Science citations, and it goes from like, you know, one a year to 10 a year, like all of a sudden. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's the, the citation data, you don't have to analyze to see that there's a break. It's just, you know, visible from outer space, as you might say. Um, and I'd done a little bit of that. I was, I'd go, I was interested a little bit in uh, what journals collectively cite each other um, uh, in, um, interested too, and this is going to be something we'll come up discussing in this project, how there's a very popular sense that philosophy has gotten more and more specialized over the years, um, trying to get a sense. And so one of the things that, um, one, of, one, so one of the distinctive things about philosophy that I think um, compared to a lot of other disciplines is it has quite a lot of uh, 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 self-styled generalist journals. Um, so if your listeners are in a lot of academic fields, this might be quite quite a surprising thing. In a lot of other fields I'm familiar with, there's like a handful of journals where literally anyone can publish in, but mostly you're not doing that. In, in linguistics, for instance, there's, there's almost no, there's like, you know, two or three journals that any linguist can publish in. But beyond that, you're, you know, if you're a syntactician, you publish in a syntax journal, right? Um, uh, philosophy has a lot of journals that everyone in philosophy can publish in, but also quite a lot of specialist journals, specialist ethics journals, philosophy of science journals, etc. And so there's enough quantity of, on both sides of that to look at the relationship between the specialist and generalist journals and try and use that as a way to test whether this sort of folk wisdom that it's gotten more specialised <laughs> over time mm -hmm. is true. And I, I actually went into it being a bit sceptical of the folk wisdom, and it turned out the folk wisdom kind of was <laughs> true. So, <laughs> uh. right. So, so maybe so turning to turning to to this to this to this book or this uh, this project, what, what would you say are um, the key contributions that that that, that the, the key things that you found out doing this uh, doing this this work? So, so well, one one thing is the thing you mentioned at the start that that the things we, the things that are part of the sort of standard history of contemporary English language philosophy, are 
in real time quite small aspects of um, of what's going on in the journals. The, the, if you take a, um, you know, if you look at figures like Bertrand Russell, G. Moore, um, uh, even Wittgenstein in the sort of earlier stages, they're just they just don't show up in the journals, and they don't show up in the journals for um, quite a while. Russell like writes enough stuff that he's sort of visible-ish, <laughs> um, but it's not. But it's nothing near as much as you would think, given the standard history. And you know, I don't mean to say standard history in a pejorative sense. I think Russell's work is like way better than the stuff that's going on there. It's right that we're um, teaching his work and not his contemporaries. Um, but it was sort of staggering, and it was it was also staggering to me that you know we 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 get the, the sort of the standard story I'd grown up with was that this there's this thing British idealism that it was like a big deal in the late nineteenth, very early twentieth century, and it was really stunning to me how much longer it it persists. That actually turns out to be true for sort of every everything that if if you sort of know the history of the field and you sort of associate some ideas with the Great papers that uh, introduce the core, the core concepts, the core arguments. The main time that 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 topic turns up in the journals is ten years, twenty years later, because understandably it makes takes time for people to to incorporate this. But if when you're looking back, you need to think, ah, oh, that idea, that's like a 1950 idea, but in fact, it's really like a 1960s and 70s discussion point because it was it was 1950 that the canonical paper was in. So. So that's so that's sort of one thing that our that our that our sort of ordinary timeline is is a little out of date. That that some of these things that we that a lot of things that we sort of think are um, a, a lot of ideas and schools last a lot longer than we thought. Um, um, but also that the the mix was kind of different. So when I'm not doing you know plowing through uh, running journals through computer programs, I mostly work in epistemology, the study of knowledge. And in the sense that we do epistemology now, it just doesn't show up at all before 1950. It's staggering. They talk about, you know, they're interested in what people know. One of the motivations for idealism is that it makes the possibility of knowledge, you know, possible, they think. But the knowledge itself is a study of uh, philosophical, uh, as an object of philosophical study. Just just doesn't show up before before the 1950s. The only paper that showed up in uh, Mind, the, the main uh, English journal for that time in epistemology, was a paper but written by someone from Calcutta working basically in you know Indian traditions and who had written a paper on testimony that on the surface looks very much like a contemporary English language paper on testimony, though in fact if you know his larger work, what you know that is he's doing is that he's um taking some very, very uh, old Indian traditions and basically, you know, transposing some of what they say into the idiom where it'll be understandable to a contemporary English language audience. And though actually it turned out it wasn't it wasn't, I think, that intelligible to a contemporary audience. It was intelligible to an audience 50 years after his time. <laughs> um uh, there, there's potentially a very big project there about the ways in which um, English language philosophy post 1970 has has in some way has a quite has a few interesting continuities with Indian philosophy that it doesn't have with its own uh, English language traditions before that. 
Uh, but yes, you would need to know, be, know a lot more Indian philosophy than I do to back that up. Um, and I said, the, the other thing that really came through was that this idea about specialization, um, uh, which I thought was a uh, exaggerated bit of folk wisdom. It turns out really to be true. Um, the sense in which, you know, the, the articles in the philosophy of science journals are just unambiguously philosophy of science articles, just keeps going up and up over time. The articles in the ethics journals that are unambiguously ethics articles just keeps going up and up over time. Um, there's just, this is something I really want to, you know, be able to in a future project cross-reference with the citation data, but it does feel from the just word count data that we do, we are getting more uh, isolation between the different, the different uh, sub-disciplines, which is not, not surprising, I think, to a lot of people, but interesting to see it, you know, come through quite as vividly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's super interesting. So maybe before we go more into the um, be in, into the details of the of the of the book and the argument, one thing that I was uh, really curious about is the and you're very explicit and open about that is the um, the way you collected the data that you use and you worked with it and then also you visualized it right so you so in the introduction you include those um replication instruction which i found incredibly helpful because that is i mean because you could you could replicate right this is any any discipline that has where journals play play a role um you could you could envisage very similar um studies um and what i also found interesting is is your so you rely very like a lot of digital humanities projects, you rely a lot on visualization, right? You you experiment with it, right. um, and you also reflect on these experiments. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess so. Is is so? I'm also curious about how how that worked and how that, in a sense, the visualizing the data and and analyzing it. How did that go hand in hand with the writing of the data? Was that like a back and forth, or was that? It, yeah, it was. Um, it was totally a back and forth. So. The data collection wasn't particularly rigorous, actually. I mean, well, it was re- it was comprehensive, but just wasn't that much hard work. I, uh, JSTOR, who are uh, actually the, the, the people in JSTOR who are doing this, are just down the road from me in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, have all these uh, files you can download that just list the w- the word counts of different articles. Um, it's not they're not comprehensive. They leave out. Um, like things like art and the and so forth. And if you really wanted to do that, you would have to go and maybe do your own work. Um, I only realized fairly deep into the project that that they'd done all this by using um, OCR technology. And so some of the data points you get are clearly uh, OCR errors. There's a, a, there's some sort of systematic mistakes in the 19th century stuff that, that um, comes through that way. Um, but, you know, I could just, go onto JSTOR and say, please give me a, a data set where, you know, each file is like a text file that just lists how, how, what words were in each article and how many times they appeared. And, and it was fantastic. Um, the reason it stops in 2013 is JSTOR has a moving window. And when I did all the downloads, that was the last year I could get full data about. So <laughs> that's when we stopped. <laughs> um, I, I did do one cross-reference against a, uh, an open access journal philosopher's imprint from 2019 by you know, sitting on a computer and hitting download 56 times to get all the articles and 
running the PDF through a, um, I can't remember what, what package I even use now to extract the same data for myself, but uh, that would have taken weeks or months of really tedious stuff if Jason hadn't just given me those, those files. Um, there was a bit of cleaning up to do. Um, uh, at, at one point, I, I don't know quite when this, ki- when this kicks in, but for some contemporary journals, JSTOR's clearly done this data, clearly done this data production off of the LaTeX uh, files, and so you get all these um, you get all these LaTeX commands clearly running through the um, clearly running through the data set, and that needed some cleaning up. And that was kind of the main uh, the main cleaning I had to do was to was to sort that out. Um, there's also um, one thing I had not realized was that what I'm calling English language journals did not used to be exclusively English language. And a lot of them published, um, you know, at least a handful of articles in French, German, occasionally Spanish, Italian. Um, text mining can't cope with that at all. So I had to go through and by hand remove, remove all of them. Um, the, the metadata JSTOR sends you has a, has a, um, a tag in it for the language of the article, but it's not a hundred percent accurate. So that yeah. was a bit of so that was a bit of cleaning up um, to do. But you know, at the end of the day, they they gave me ninety eight percent of what I needed, and I, and I had yeah. to, I had to clean it. <laughs> uh, but compared to what most people, compared to the, the, the yeah, yeah. compared to the cleaning time that most people oh, spend, yeah. mine was pretty uh, <laughs> mine was pretty light. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just finishing a project. Yeah. That's so that seems to have been maybe even the easiest part of it. Yeah. What... So then then it was the bit that uh, the the visualizations were crucial because there was just too much there to for me to see even in any kind yeah. of tabular form. So so I the, the whole thing's written in R markdown, um, which was uh, which was great. And um both at a sort of macro level and then sort of within the sort of very small parts of the book itself, um, I was constantly relying on, you know, graphing up the data just so I could see what the what the trends were, what the what what was what was popping out, um, you know, getting a sense of, you know, that the high point of this is like uh, you know, ten times as high as the high point of something else, um, getting. I should actually maybe mention it. Um, the your listeners might know this better than other philosophers. So the whole thing is using topic modeling, where you take the just the word count for the different things you're trying to analyze, and try and divide up the articles you've got into. Well, I ended up using ninety topics to try and you know um, get some get some trends. With the thought being that a topic is really individuated by the the characteristic words that are used in it, and this turns out to work work surprisingly well. Uh, and then I, so I've got these 90 topics, but I want to see like, you know, um, when do they, when do they kick in? Um, and one thing I did was renumber all the topics so that they were in something like chronological order. And that helped me a lot to be able to make sense of them because otherwise I was just getting, here's topic 24, here's topic 59. What do these even mean? I don't know. But once I had them in chronological order, then I could 
you know, when I would adjust the model, I could be like, I'm going to be finding one of these topics turn up, you know, centered around 1925 or something, better, better look for it, surprising if it's not there type thing. But so one thing that I would never have found, for instance, without visualizing the, the data is that there's a period around 1980 where all of the topics get a little, all 90 of them get a little bit of uh, attention in the journals. And this was a super resilient finding uh, that, you know, there's, there's a million different parameters you can adjust. And I adjusted most of them and I would you know, make these adjustments and do the graphs. And no matter what I did, the, the, the computer would divide up all the articles into 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 topics with such and such parameters set that I wanted. And always there'd be this thing where for most of the time, there's some things that are just not part of the scene. But around 1980, everything is. And that was just nothing I would have spotted if I hadn't just like drawn a graph and be like, oh, there's a little spot around there where there are no dots and there are no marks saying, you know, uh, the, the x-axis uh, is, is blank all of a sudden. So that was kind of nice. Um, and at a micro level, the, the, the longest part of the book is me writing a couple of paragraphs on each of the 90 topics saying what they are, what, where they came from. And without the without the graphs to be able to look at them and go, here's when it went up and down, here's, um, here's how it behaved in the different journals, uh, I wouldn't have been able to yeah. even tell you like what, yeah. you know, what topic 37 was even meant to be about. <laughs> yeah. And was that a, so was this, I mean, imagine, imagine that this must be quite different from the way that you usually work when you write a paper. Oh, it's completely a different. Yeah. I mean, for, from a, from the perspective of someone in philosophy, the biggest difference was that it was was that it was so um, uh, atomic that I could sort of break it up. That I, you know, I, I've never had a project where that I said, ah, there are ninety things to write. Okay, well today I've got a, you know I've got a few minutes. I can write two of them, and I've no longer got sixty-seven left to do. I've got sixty-five left to do, and um, I've, I've I've never in my life had a project where I could like that precisely say that I knocked off 3% of the <laughs> of the project over this this time. Um, and, you know, it was kind of liberating that to be like, this wasn't a waste of half an hour. This was, you know, getting <laughs> that that 1% one, 1 done. So that, that was actually kind of kind of fun, um, I, I think. Yeah, uh, that is. But, and do you think it had, do you think it had, I'm, I'm curious about that because that's something that I'm finding in, in my own work, right? That, Right, like writing with the help of with the help of visualized data is to me feels so different from the yeah from 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 other kinds of writing. Um, no, I know, and 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 one thing that I would would often do is, you know, I would especially so one as well as looking at the visualizations. The other thing that I would look at was the model would tell me, hey, I've got this topic. I think it's like one of the ninety ways I'm divide you know divide up the field. And here are like the 10 articles that I think are like most characteristic of this topic. And that was, that's interesting. And then, you know, because maybe I've heard of two or three of them, I can tell from the titles what, the, you know, five or six of the others are like. And that, that would like give me a bit of a sense of where this was. And then I could say, oh, okay, what's my, what's my guess about what's going to look like when I hit the button and the graphs will turn up? And then I can, especially if I'm writing right at the time, I can hit the button, look at the graphs, and report on whether this was like obvious or surprising. And there was a good mix, actually. I mean, if it was all surprising, that would be a 
guess a sign that something had gone badly wrong. Um, but 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 being able to get a bit of non-visual data in first, so you so I could so I I, I had something to calibrate off. Um, but then also the very quick visualization to check. Hey, it turns out actually my predictions were totally misguided. Um, right, was, was fun too. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I, I feel like this gives the book almost a, in some parts, a conversational feel, right? Because you can, you can really feel how you, how you, in a way, how you describe that process. You're very, you're very, it's not closed off, right? It's very open about how you tried out different things and how some things were surprising and then some weren't, or how in some cases you discovered, well, this is, I don't know, this is due to the model, there's evidently something wrong here, or this is, this is actually a really curious finding. And I think it makes the, it makes it, I mean, I don't usually read a lot of philosophy, but I would imagine that this is, um, it, this, it's, is it's this is not right. how philosophy, this is not how philosophy normally written, no. I mean, I, right. I, 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 and I, was, I was very conscious in writing this, that mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- there's a polemical uh, point to this, which is, you know, my, my, my big hope for all this is that it will Make it uh, possible for people to write similar things in the in the future. There's um, d- digital humanities has not interacted a ton with with philosophy so far, and I think that's unfortunate. And I, but I think that it will only happen. I mean, if if you get into this like vicious cycle where graduate students don't want to go into doing philosophy and digital humanities because no one will take them seriously, at least not on the philosophy side. And so I, I wanted to create a sort of space where graduate students can feel, this is something I can go into, this is something that someone who's got like a fancy name chair at the University of Michigan does, but also this is something where I don't have to spend like two years like, you know, learning from scratch all these different things. I can at least get a, you know, get a, get a, get a leg up and to, to go into. Um, I, I'm sure people will do a much better job of it, but I'm I'm sort of hoping that by you know going through in that that level of detail, like how to get this started, I'll give people an easier on ramp. Yeah, 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 and that is, I mean, maybe that's a good that's a good um, that's a good point to turn maybe to the content of the book more more in detail. Maybe what we could do, you can you can so it's structured into three parts, and maybe you can say just a little bit about each each um each each part of the book um 
So in the so in the first one is it's mostly I mean you have a long chapter about methodology right where you go really into the weeds about how how you um, how you how, well all the choices that went into this and then also the um, the topics and then finding ways of visualizing those topics that make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the 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 first the first part really is just a deep 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 dive into the ninety topic model that the book is based around. Um, going through first how I chose that particular topic, why 90 and not some other more sensible number, um, largely because I tried a bunch and 90 looked like it gave the best uh, the best outcome. What kind of uh, parameters I needed to set? Well, what kind of, you know, what kind of fil- filters I needed to, to, to put on to make sure I got rid of the um, crucial stuff? Um, and then going through like what it, what it outputted, like, you know, what each of those 90 things really were and trying to figure out a way of, you know, a spaghetti graph of 90 things is kind of a mess. It's not, uh, there's no good way to represent them all at once. Even a faceted graph of 90 is sort of too many. I mean, you can't like visualize 90 things on a page. You can come close, but probably, you know, uh, 30 or 40 is is enough of that. It still was, there still was a little bit of interest. Well, the big interest to me was this weird, little bump where I sort of expected there to be some low values in there and there weren't. But that, so that's like really part one of the book. Why, how I built you know, this model, why, why I built this particular model. Oh, why I included these journals too. I mean, why these 12 and some others, um, partially because the data was there partially because they thought they got, gave me a good mix of what I, what was going on in the, in the field. Um, but the result of all this is I've got something that, that feels Still a bit foreign. I mean, it's to to you know regular working philosophers. Um, it's not totally foreign. There's a bit that says here's stuff about Kant, and people are like, "Oh, good, here's some stuff about Kant. I understand this." Um, but it's still a bit weird. And what so the, so part two of the book is trying to regroup those ninety topics into more familiar things to say. These are the nine topics that are about metaphysics. These are the four that are about epistemology. These are the seven that are about political philosophy. And then, you know, uh, looking at what the trends are in those big fields collectively over time. Um, I, I mentioned that epistemology goes from like zero to taking off. It's uh, that's it's potentially misleading because for several of the topics, there's quite remarkable stability. So, you know, m- most of these topics have uh, a, um, you know, not quite a normal distribution, but something like, a, you know, a bell curve distribution. There's a time that they're about and they go from being very low to, you know, rising up and then somewhat more slowly falling falling off the other side. That's the that's the sort of trend. It's one wave after another, different, different things. But when you add up all the waves across ethics or all the waves across philosophy of mind, you get something reasonably stable um, for most of these things, for, for a bunch of these familiar philosophical uh, divisions, what you get is the percentage that the journals will dedicate to that is pretty stable, but within that, there's huge amounts of variation. Um, there's also, a, in the middle of that, another long chapter about the methodology of doing that sorting, which was um, was more work than I expected. Um, I at first thought this would be like like twenty minutes of just looking at it and go an eyeball and going, that's political philosophy, that's metaphysics, and wow, well, it wasn't. 
Um, so that was fun. Um, but again, I wanted to like give people both the, to, if people wanted to critique what I've done, when there's, it's, there's a lot of criticisms you could make, um, you know, to say, to, to, to acknowledge some of the, the choices I'd made, but also for people like, looking into it in more detail. Um, and, as, and, 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 and I have a chapter on epistemology because that's where I'm from and also because it was the one that sort of surprised me the most. And then, then the last part of the book is trying to sort of back away from doing everything on a year-by-year basis and try and see if you can, um, to try and look at much at, at trends where you, where I aggregate a lot of the years together. Because philosophy is not a big field. Some of these journals I'm looking at publish, you know, sometimes as few as 12 articles in a year. The year-by-year data is incredibly noisy. So just trying to do something where I... Um, so the big, the big aim for the, for the last part of the book is to try and see what, what, is, what happens when you try and aggregate stuff over longer periods of, of time, over, either over periods that you know, make sense from a, just looking at a calendar, like decades, or from some things that match up with what I sort of antecedently thought were um, crucial breakpoints in, uh, in, in philosophy. And to be honest, actually, the decades ended up being more relevant than the than what I than than the uh, divisions that I had I had thought. Um, somewhat to my surprise, I'd sort of thought the decades were going to be kind of arbitrary and uh, you know noisy because um, there's different numbers of things published in each decade and so forth. But I kind of ended up learning more from the decades analysis than these these era analyses. Um, so that that was the main part, and then it, then it sort of ends with some thoughts of other other projects you could you could sort of do with it by seeing what would happen if you extended it to books and not just journals, seeing um, and and seeing what happens with with more contemporary stuff. I, I sort of don't know what's going to happen from if you analyze the second half of the twenty tens, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So that's that's the main summary of the book. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I mean, at the very end, you have that you have that small subchapter about buzzwords, right? Oh, Where yeah. you, uh, yeah, that seemed. Um... Yeah. So there's there's a um, so one of the weird things that came through is that um, philosophy that philosophers seem to use a different language in uh, stuff in the very re- in very recent times to what they had done in the past that they'd that that. That there are these words, and have you forgot they were? We talk about worries about things rather than objections. We talk about uh, challenges, and we talk rather than objections. We talk about accounts rather than theories. We haven't yet got to talking about takes, but I assume that we'll start. We'll have takes turn up in um, if you keep doing this. Um, and it was sort of funny. Uh, I um, I couldn't. Um, I I I'm still like open minded about. Where, about why this happened. If I had three months to dedicate to doing nothing but um, figuring this out, I would run the same project again, stopping at like some randomly picked year, like nineteen ninety five or something, and seeing if there are if there were like buzzwords that it sort of landed on that were sort of big deals in the eighties like, and early nineties, and maybe there would be. I think most people I've spoken to think 
think that this was a really weird thing about the early 21st century, that words like commitment, account, proposal, typically worry, and so forth became... Um, but maybe there, maybe it's always like that. Maybe there's always like a new way the kids speak. Uh, I, I, it's the data's all there. It just would be. It's, it's. I just don't know of a way to test whether or not this kind of stuff comes out. Um, short of like literally doing the whole project again and having it be the last thing in a similar sized project. You know, probably, probably, probably we did we did something weird and we started talking a weird way in the two thousands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So that's. I mean, so thanks, thanks for this for this summary. So I mean, the the um, at the moment the way this is published is it's a it's a website, mm -hmm. uh, right? And you and I think you mentioned that at some point that you actually. I mean, I think you just finished this recently. Um, yeah, I finished this draft back in uh, May. So I was I was wondering. I mean, to me, it 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 felt like a the, the website felt like a really good format to engage with the um with the with the data and the visualizations and and what what you what you what you make of it. But I was I was wondering, are you are you happy with the way this is published now, or do you um would you um do you, what are your plans for for publishing this uh, maybe so, in, a, in a different format i mean my main plan i'm happy with the way it's published now i'm not happy with the way it's archived now i mean i don't think that the format i've got it in is one that you can be confident will still be a you know working thing in five years let alone 50 years um and uh so i i, I am sort of talking in the, you know in the midst of between all the other things that are happening to uh, university press about getting it published electronically through um, through them. I mean, the way it's written up, if, if, if you've used, uh, anyone who's used our markdown before will, will know, the, there's not a very easy division between form and content. Um, trying, to get, trying to get this material in some other... Uh, representation would be uh, a lot of work. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, that you can change the CSS, you know, or something and get some, some things that, that way that make it look a bit, bit different, but, but it would be very, very hard to make large scale changes. But what, so what I really do want to work on is having something that it doesn't become all um, dead links in, um, uh, in a few years. And that that would be the big upside of having a university press. I mean, I mean, we you know, you, online publishing is so young that we just don't that we just don't know that the experience so far is pretty dire. If you um, you know, go go back and read histories of uh, electronically published things from the nineteen nineties, they're all full of saying how this was like incredibly hard archival work because <laughs> nothing nothing persists. Um, so. I don't know what we can do to uh, guarantee persistence, but yeah, you know, I kind of think maybe a, you know a, a university press at least increases the probabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I think that's a very. I mean, um, I know that Stanford University Press has that great series, um, 
uh, I think they call them digital monographs. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, where where the aim is a bit dead, but uh, yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that you sorry, I was going to say. Well, you must have this too in mapping, but you know, um, partially because I'm doing this all in pixels. I went a bit overboard, and there's all sorts of like, large graphs that wouldn't aren't strictly necessary. But you know, as it stands, if I printed it out, it'd be like a thousand color pages, and so it'd be like what three hundred dollars or something as a book. Um, so that's not really going to happen, um, even if I'd have to edit it substantially to make it at all publishable as a as a book, and I'm not sure it would be uh, worth it. It's partially the fun; it's about to click from one part to another. It's cross references everywhere and so forth, and um, and just being able to say, you know, to be able to put, you know, if there's like 27 things that turn up in a 27 interesting papers that turn up in a topic, I just list the 27 papers, and people can eyeball them, and not have been to fuss about about that. I don't really think there's a way to make it work in anything like its current form as a, as a printed book. Um, it, the quantities are too much. The in, interconnectedness of the parts is too yeah. much. The color is too much. <laughs> yeah, and the color is essential, right? Because you can read those charts without... Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. The I mean, the spaghetti I mean, graphs aren't, read, aren't readable at all, but with... Uh, under <laughs> sand, but with yeah. with no color, even even less so. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that 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 you that you said um, that you said earlier, right? That this for you is also in a way uh, um, there's also a programmatic side to this, right? And to to maybe promote um, also a different way of writing uh, philosophy and of, of of doing philosophical scholarship. Um, and I realize that this is a very recent. Project, but I was wondering, do you have um, have you got any reactions from from colleagues? Is this um, is this? I'm just wondering if this is something that would be completely outlandish to 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 people in your discipline, or or if this is something that, uh, um, yeah, in a sense, is maybe not that uh, not that un- unusual, or maybe or something that appeals, or maybe doesn't appeal to 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 um, to to the people in your in your discipline. Um, so it's it's. it's <laughs> I think it's very hard to get much feedback because of all the lockdown. It would have been really fascinating to be, have more chats with people in person, either in my department or at events, and to be able to get more of a, you know, to read the body language that people have been like, you know, do, do they look really skeptical about what I'm doing here or do they do they seem interested? The, I mean, the online conversations I've had have been pretty enthusiastic, but there's uh, people online who are probably the most... <laughs> the most target audience for it. Um, one of the, 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 the there's actually a, a sort of double, a, a double faceted challenge to this. One is that there's a, there's a real challenge, there's a real debate within, no, debate's the wrong word actually. There's some tension within philosophy about how recently one can really do history of philosophy. I mean, philosophy more than most other disciplines has its own history as part as a big component of it, but that mostly runs through the early twentieth century. You don't, um, you know, uh, practically nobody, except occasionally, occasionally me in a slightly different context, um, writes articles about the history of nineteen eighties philosophy or even about individual things in the nineteen eighties. You don't apply, you know, exegetical approaches to work from. <laughs> The 1980s and 1990s. So, so one of the challenges already is getting people to take the very idea of doing historical work about 
something that's so recent um, when everyone else is doing stuff about 300 or 3,000 years ago. Um, and then on top of that, the challenge of doing it, you know, digitally rather than, you know, close reading of, uh, you know, what does Wittgenstein mean in this particular paragraph type type thing? But I think people were still, people online were still sort of, were still really fascinated by it. And um, uh, so I, I think there was there was at least some positive feedback, but I, I haven't heard a ton of people being like, ah, and here's, you know, um, I really want to do like a, a you know, uh, a PhD project on this? Can you like you know give me some more clues, more pointers? <laughs> so, but you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't getting a ton of open hostility, but I'm a bit worried that the openly hostile people would just ignore me, and if it was only if only in person, <laughs> I could really tell that, that how dismissive they were being. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I mean, so so maybe. Um, one one question: If 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 I mean this is so, the, the, and you you write it also in a way, right? That invites replication and that mm. invites other people, that encourages other people to do similar work, whether in philosophy or in any other discipline. And I, I was just wondering, what would you say to somebody who um, who would like to embark on a similar project in in a different with a different discipline? Oh, I, mean, I think um, well, the first thing I'd say to them is that JSTOR is like doing making some changes to how they're how they're doing stuff so my my instructions might be getting out of date so like go and go into jstor and grab the data that you want today before they tinker with uh, tinker with it um i i think one thing i'd say is to try and you know th think a bit in advance about what questions you want to ask i i part of what i was doing here was so easy to do in philosophy because we have this uh, division between the generalist and specialist journals. Um, so you can sort of see how those two things are interacting. And that was one of the things I was, I was sort of fascinated by. Um, and, and because, you know, it's so uh, discursive, I mean, if you're trying to do this in psychology, like, for instance, how much of a challenge it would be, you know, with, with all the, the sort of mathematical symbols in the, in the sort of data analysis part. So there would be there would be a challenge trying to replicate this in fields that had that had more math in the internal articles, um, but otherwise I think you know um, you could just uh, do something similar to what I to what I did. Oh, I guess the other th the one very big thing to think through is you. I spent a lot of time getting the journals I wanted to pick I wanted to include in it and it's very important it turned out this is going to sound kind of obvious but it took me a while to realize it's very important to not include journals that are both a bit outlierish in terms of what they cover and publish a very high quantity of articles <laughs> because they just end up flooding the um, thing and you don't you know, if you want, if you wanted to learn about the history of that journal, well, great. But I had some early drafts of this that that had things that were really telling me something about the history of some idiosyncratic journals, not about the history of the field as a whole. So, if you do want to do this kind of thing to understand a an academic discipline, you have to be a bit brutal at, at excluding 
things that are too unrepresentative. Um, there's a there's a danger of just writing your own sort of preferred conclusions into the result there if you exclude things you exclude things because you think they're unrepresentative and then the stuff they do is left out and you you think oh I'm right they were they were unrepresentative but but the alternative is just is just kind of bad um that you know you you you, you just end up you know, again, I don't know if this how much this generalizes actually, but one weird thing about philosophy is that different journals publish almost literally orders of magnitude different numbers of papers, um, and so per per year. And so, if you're doing things like I was doing, where the the journal article is your main unit of currency, um, you've got to put a bit of work into keeping the how how big each journal is per year a bit similar or it's just some of these things just end up flooding your your data set and that that i suspect is going to be a bit, a bit of a challenge there's a the um i mean there's one way to avoid this which is you know, there was there, there's a, a published journal article that um about the journal philosophy of science using these techniques that um this this is where I, I learned about these approaches from is from from that work. And that feels like something you could do no matter what you no, no, no matter what, then you could say, Oh, I want to I want to tell the story of this journal, not of the field this journal is in. And that's like great, that's something that you need very little. Um you you don't need to have very much care about the setup of the project for it. You can just go in and see what you find and start telling stories. <laughs> Um, but if you want to, if you want to, if you want to tell a story of a of an academic field, not of a journal, yeah. you've got to be a bit more careful. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so what what are you working um, what are you working on at the moment? What what is um, uh, what is what is do you have a do you have a next project that is lined so the, up? So the plan for the next project is to do something more systematic about about citations. Um, so, um, I mean, I'd always sort of thought that was the way to understand understand journals was just look at cross citations. And, um, but it turned out to be harder to get the data in a usable way than uh, I'd thought. We're still sort of stuck on at, at that stage. Um, and I guess one thing I had not realized was how, uh, non-existent citation practices were in the early part of the 20th century. Um, it's really kind of cavalier, actually. I mean, there's all these times you know, when um, people won't even name the, there's clearly a, there's clearly a target they have in mind. They don't even name the target they have. It's um, some kind of thing like weird, a weird political thing where it's like naming them would be giving them too much credit or something. But even when they do, and even when they're, even when they're in that school and like they're, they're like drawing on someone's work, they will just like drop the guy's name and assume that you know where to where to look. So the citation data isn't in philosophy, at least, isn't really usable before nineteen forty-five. So it'll be it'll be a somewhat later starting project, um, and there will be a bit of work at even adjusting like what do citations mean before you know the nineteen seventies. But that's that that's the next project and. That's hopefully to something that can be interesting in itself, like who's citing who, um, um, when 
why is it that all of a sudden you see these uh, floods of papers getting written with lots and lots of citations that hadn't happened before? Um, one thing that I had, uh, I'm kind of perplexed by, and I um, is that there's a bunch of papers from the 1950s and 60s that have no citations at all through like 2010, and then all of a sudden get a little bit of attention. Not a ton, but just like going from absolutely nothing to, you know, popping up here and there. And that's, um, that's not at all what I expected. I thought once, I thought once papers had sort of died from a citation perspective, that was, that was it. They were dead, but uh, apparently not. They, they can be weird, weird coming back, backs to life. Um, so um, some of that will involve going back and reading the actual papers uh, involved and seeing why this has happened. Is it, is it because citation practices have changed? Is it people are more interested in 1950s philosophy than I had, uh, than I had right. realized right about now? Interesting. Uh, and is this going to be um, um, a book-length project, like something uh, of a similar... Pro probably. It, probably. Well, we'll it'll you know, see, how it, see how it writes. I mean... Um, But I'm, I'm sort of hoping to do something that's sort of comprehensive enough that um, uh, that people can sort of see where the where the choices have where the choices have been made, see if the the sort of the trend that I was seeing here towards increasing specialization is is true, um, see if what on on reflection was a sort of obvious point that um, that that fields. That a sort of that a philosophical debate is often centered 10, 20 years after what you think of as the canonical paper in that uh, field. Whether that whether that stays true, so some of, so it'll be quite a bit of sort of cross cross referencing. I think with this work, um, to see if some of the because you know at the end of the day, all I'm doing in this book is um, you know using word counts and trying to draw some massive conclusions from them, and. I was surprised at how good evidence that was for things, but it's pretty fallible evidence. Uh, and if the citation data doesn't back it up, then uh, you know some of it should just get rejected. But because, as I was mentioning earlier, because there's so little work done on history of uh, 20th century philosophy, um, it's not like I've got this huge amount of you know scholarly work that I have to like say, oh, does it, is does this scholarly opinion get get backed up does does this one not there's a handful of like of people who have written on this stuff but only a handful and so uh so some of this is is a bit of raw exploration yeah yeah which yeah i mean that's an interesting place to be in right because in some ways it can be liberating i imagine but in other ways it's also yeah it's a bit like i don't know walking stepping in the dark yeah oh, it's kind of yeah. fun i mean i mean one other thing that i That that I might do, but it, you know, this might be like years down the track. Is so as I've been saying a couple of times, philosophy has, undergoes this huge change from from uh, you know 1968 to 1975, and I've always wondered whether there was something, uh, whether there was like a sociological or economic expl explanation for that. That um, that there's all these people who get hired 
all these people who are slightly older than the baby boomers who get hired to you know, teach the baby boomers as the as the U.S. college system um, explodes. And on the face of it, this feels like a very plausible explanation. Why why are the why are there so many of the really central figures in philosophy to this day? Why are they you know born between 1935 and 1945? Well, they were just a few years older than the boomers, and so they all got hired. That's great. <laughs> But if that theory is true, you'd expect to see it in economics, in mathematics, in a whole bunch of other fields. And I'm actually not sure that you do on my very, very initial um, uh, looks at the data. So there's some interesting like cross-disciplinary questions that if you know if that that even disciplines that have very different intellectual trajectories, you know, have been pushed by the same sociological forces. And so so which which trends are, are similar and different across fields is, is tells us something interesting, I think. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a super interesting, that could be a super challenging, I imagine. But uh, that sounds like a, yeah, sounds yeah. Like a fascinating I mean, project. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's something else I'm going to look at with the citation data too, is that, that I have this impression that, well, there's a bunch of you know, philosophers who are you know, baby boomers who are very important, it just doesn't feel to be quite as many of them as you might have expected. <laughs> um, and, and you know, you, you see the same thing in music, that, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and Bob Dylan and all sorts of people are, bought, are just slightly older than the baby boomers, and, that's, um, and that, that, that the generation just before the baby boom got a, got a, bit, of a, head, got a bit of a head start in some fields. <laughs> um, so... Seeing how much that persists across other fields is a um, another interest around here. Interesting. Well, this sounds uh, this sounds super exciting. Um, so, well, when the citation when the citation project is over, we'll invite you. We'll invite you again <laughs> for <laughs> for another interview. Um, well, thanks so much, Brian, for for this interview. It was really fascinating. Um, it was uh, yeah, this is a great project, and I, I will I'll include the link uh, to your to your website to the book in the um, in the in the little uh, text blurb for 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 the podcast, so people can visit it, um, um, and yeah, and, and and follow up on this. So thanks so much for for uh, for, for, for being on. on the. It's been great. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.